0: Katie, how's it going?
1: Hey, Jesse, I got a a text message I want to read to you. Oh, go for it. Okay. Hey, just wanted to give you a belated congrats on the success of the podcast. It was the perfect soundtrack for my cross-country drive. My one recommendation is that you be meaner to Jesse. I heard him on the phone the other day referring to himself as an untouchable golden god, so I think you need to take him down a notch. Jesse, do you have any idea who this text message might be from?
0: Huh. Is that my mom?
1: (laughs) It was your brother.
0: (laughs) Nice. Oh, man. I should have bullied him more growing up. You
1: should have bullied him more. I suggested that we kick you off the podcast and bring him on, and he's into it. He says he's going to to write to the board of directors and launch a coup soon.
0: We should get Hunter Biden to sit on our board.
1: (laughs) Speaking of Hunter Biden.
0: What a segue. Yes.
1: But first, we should probably announce what podcast we're listening to. Jesse, what podcast are we listening to? This
0: is the Savage (laughs) Lovecast. I'm I'm Dan Savage.
1: If only, if only.
0: This is Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single.
1: And I'm Katie Herzog. And today we are going to be talking about Hunter Biden. Yes. But first. But first. We are going to be talking about the 1619 Project. Jesse. What does the word 1619 mean to you? Uh,
0: the number of slices of pizza I eat per year.
1: (laughs) Per year. I figured that would be per week. Uh, the 1619 project, (laughs) at this point,
0: I could not tell you if it came out in the year 1998 or 2003. I want to say it came out this year at the, like, start of this year.
1: No, Jesse, it came out at the, in, in 2019 on the 400th anniversary of 1619. Oh, wow. Oh, that
0: makes much more sense. Okay.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, they, they they decided to mark the anniversary of the uh, the first slaves in the United States on the four hundred th- and one and one anniversary.
0: You know the way you say it makes it sound like what I just said was stupid, and I don't like that. <laughs> um, yeah, so sixteen nineteen project was a sweeping special issue of the New York Times magazine, sort of anchored by a long essay by Nicole Hannah Jones. It also had all sorts of other impressive contributors, and the basic argument the magazine made uh, was about reframing America's founding and its history, uh, basically saying 1776. Well, see, even what I'm about to say is sort of now being contested. But in the way this was originally sort of rolled out and some of the content of Nicole Hannah-Jones' essay, the idea was to reframe the founding from 1776 to 1619 to basically emphasize the fact that Slavery and racism is in our nation's DNA. Uh, it isn't this sort of wonderful story of these like wise white men forming a more perfect union. It's a lot more complicated than that. So there's a great Washington Post uh media article called How the 1619 Project Took Over 2020 by Sarah Ellison. And it's a good example of how, like, even though fewer and fewer journalists are doing this, like maybe if you don't just sit online opining all day, you can actually like have sources and talk to people on different sides of a controversy. And what Elson says is true. Like this this special issue of the magazine took over America. It, it was sent out as a school curriculum materials. Uh, Nicolana Jones won a Pulitzer for the introductory essay. So this was sort of seen as like the – one of the most important media stories of a long time and this really vital, important document. And the subjects, they they spanned everything. It wasn't just – it was really about the way history interacts with the present. Um, my favorite example is like a, there's an article about how sort of the Atlanta suburbs were shaped by racism, uh, sh- sugar consumption patterns shaped by racism, just everything. Um, now, I have a sort of embarrassing admission. Is this a safe space, Katie? This is a safe space, Jesse. So when a new thing thing comes out and everyone freaks out about how great it is my initial impression is often to avoid it <laughs> everyone is in i it's like this fucking emo teenager thing where it's like no uh i have not read most of the 1619 project i've been much more interested frankly in the story around it that we're about to get into and i actually think the story around it um is a story in its own right because it has to do with with legitimacy and the role of media and which experts are taken seriously but i take it you on the other hand have have read the thing front to back five or six times
1: Oh, every word. I actually wallpapered my office with, the, with the issue itself. It's the only thing I read. And it, the only podcast that I listen to is the 1619 podcast. I just listen to it over and over. No, the reality is that it took over Twitter. It took over the discourse. And my reaction to that was to say like, oh, I'm going to revisit this when people stop talking about it. Um, it just like, I don't know, I, I think that makes me probably a, a worse person than I could be. But my reaction to this was to also sort of um, try to ignore it. Right. The
0: problem was, I. so I had the same thing, where like, when people stop talking about it, I'm sure I'll read it. But then the Twitter discourse, I spent too much time on Twitter, and the Twitter discourse was so completely stupid. And uh, some some rainy day, I will sit down and read it. And you know, like one of the authors is Matthew Desmond, a sociologist who is a genius. Like he got a genius grant. I interviewed him. His book about eviction is one of the best books I've read this century. Um, this century, meaning since 2000, uh, in the thousands of years I've been alive. I have no doubt that, uh, that there's, there's important stuff there, but okay. Do you want to, to give the broad outlines of what, what the controversy centered around the historical controversy?
1: Sure. So most of the controversy surrounds two sort of major controversial claims made in the package itself. The first was made in the digital sort of introductory text introducing the project. And that claim was that the true founding of the United States was not 1776. It was 1619. That claim about the true founding was later erased from the digital text. So that's one problem. And this was done, by the way, without any acknowledgement by the New York Times. The second issue is that Nicole Hannah Jones argued in her introductory essay that the reason that the American revolutionaries decided to separate from England was to preserve slavery.
0: Yes, and and you can separate those out because like so, true founding of America is is a subjective term, and part of the reason the the raising debt of this. Um, of this whole package was to provoke and to raise questions. So like, to me, if someone says 1619 was the true founding of America, I would say, okay, what do you mean by that? We could have a discussion, blah, blah, blah.
1: Right. Is it a metaphor? Or do you mean, do you mean that literally? Yeah.
0: Whereas saying that a major like point of the revolution was to preserve slavery is like the sort of historical claim that, that is probably like, much closer to right or to wrong. It's probably much more objective because you can check the sources. And it doesn't really seem that any legitimate historians believe this is true, correct?
1: Right. So what happened is so the 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 Twitter discourse after the project was launched, people started talking about this, but and and the perceived errors in the project. But the first publication that actually like sat down with a historian and interviewed the historian about the project and about the errors in the project was the World Socialist website, oddly, the World Socialist website. Um, and so in November 20, 2019, they published an interview with this Pulitzer winning historian, Gordon Wood, um, and he took issue with, with that particular claim. And then so since then that got like it, it, you know it's interesting the world socialist website like it's not a website that I'd ever heard of it's not a major publication it's not a major media publication um but it did that 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 interview really sort of blew up and it opened the door for all of this other criticism, um, which subsequently would uh, Gordon Wood, um, along with uh, with three other historians, wrote a letter to The New York Times criticizing the project. Um, here's a quote from The Washington Post article. Um, this is from Sean Willentz. He he told The Washington Post reporter that after he received his issue of the magazine, he says, I threw the thing across the room. I was so astounded because I ran across a paragraph on the American Revolution and it was just factually wrong. Um, And the response of the New York Times to this letter was basically to dismiss it.
0: Yeah. And and here, let me just read. This is also from the Post article. Um, Nicole Hannah-Jones wrote that, quote, one of the primary reasons the colonists decided to declare their independence for Britain was because they wanted to protect the institution of slavery, end quote, at a time when, quote, Britain had grown deeply conflicted over its role in the, in the barbaric institution. According to Willens and others, like, just on multiple levels, that doesn't make sense. That wasn't what was motivating the colonists and, um, or the revolutionaries. I guess by that point, they were, not whatever they were. And then, um, it also just isn't true that Britain had grown, grown conflicted over its role in the global slave trade. In fact, Willens says, Abolitionism in, in Britain was sort of inspired by American abolition, which, which also complicates Nicole Hannah Jones' thesis of America really sort of having a uniquely pernicious, uh, role. I mean, this gets complicated, but it, it just complicates her thesis. So yes, the, a letter is written to, uh, The Times in part because there was a sense that the Times hadn't really been listening to these critiques. And in fact, one historian who is a fact checker on the project said she was ignored. This was not – these were not issues that um, people hadn't raised to the Times, right?
1: Yeah, totally. So, uh, so these four historians—they were all right, ri- all white—write this letter to the Times. The Times sort of dismisses it, and then, uh, and then later in March of this year, this black historian Leslie Harris published a piece in Politico called "I Help Fact Check the 1619 Project." The Times ignored me, um, so it's sort of an inflammatory headline. Um, but she. You know, she, she was, was a, a bit critical of the, the four historians, the white historians who signed this letter. Um, but she still brought up, you know, her own, her own points and she sort of came to the, the same conclusions as they did that there were these factual errors within the piece.
0: One of the things that frustrated me about this was, was people pointed to the fact that there were only white historians on the Sean Wilentz letter. Nicole Hannah Jones role shaping this controversy on Twitter. Is not good. She, from very early on, she repeatedly said basically that there are quote unquote white historians and those are the sorts of people who have a problem with what she wrote. Suggesting this is a white thing. This is some sort of myopia because of their right. race. There are-
1: Yeah, that is racist. Yeah,
0: either sometimes I, I think she creeps between just like, huh, isn't that interesting that white historians believe this and basically saying racism is clouding, is clouding their vision on this. When the fact is that mainstream historians of this era do not believe that this, this one claim we should say in a 10,000 word essay is true. They just think it's false and some people got pissed off that the paper record would paint a, would print a false claim for political reasons. So what annoys me is people are going, huh, why, why couldn't Wolensk get You know, non-white scholars on it. It's like, well, I think that's pretty clear. By then the battle lines had been drawn. And if you're, if you're a progressive or black scholar in good standing, you don't want to, you know, be accused of whiteness or whatever because it's now been determined that this is the quote unquote white view. I just think things got very disingenuous and racialized in this weird way very quickly, largely because of Nicole Hannah Jones, who on Twitter, like many of us, does not acquit herself well. Like, I, when I compare the stuff I've written about that I'm proudest of versus my worst Twitter moments, I just think Twitter probably detracts from, you know, uh, how I'm seen in general. And I just think that's true of Nicole Hannah Jones too, over and over and over. And she, she alludes to that in the Washington Post piece.
1: Right. And she recently deleted her entire Twitter history.
0: Um, I, I was also struck the other, this, I mean, this is such a interesting, good piece of media reporting, but this really jumped out at me too. Um, so Jake Silverstein, the editor of the Times Magazine, when the historians wrote this letter that he did end up printing with a response that was much longer from from him, we perceived it right away to be an attack on the project, said Silverstein. He questioned why they didn't just contact him or Hannah Jones directly to offer thoughts on how to, quote, strengthen this historical analysis, as he said other readers had. Again, like this this sort of fainting couch catching the vapors i can't believe they wrote a letter to us it's like this is sort of what it means to participate in intellectual life on as fraud a subject as slavery and when your superstar author is calling people racist on twitter for criticizing her like you can't then complain that they went ahead and wrote a letter I just this this everyone involved in this just seems so thin-skinned i think
1: right a letter in which jake silverson is the gatekeeper
0: yeah Okay. So, so we told this story slightly out of order, but the, the, what sparked this Washington Post article, I think, although it may have been in the works was, was Brett Stevens, the conservatives time columnist, uh, last week. He published a Times column about this whole thing. And he argued that, you know, this, this part of Nicole Hannah Jones' essay was historically unfounded, that the Times didn't handle it well. Like he reached out to Nicole Hannah Jones for comment. He went about it in a journalistic way. When I read his column, I, I uh, the general thrust of it struck me as fair, other than the parts that are sort of open to interpretation. But but Brett Stevens, I, I thought he told the story in a pretty straightforward way, right?
1: Yeah, I thought so too. And there's some interesting. He does some like actual digging here. Um, stuff he or he talks about stuff that Brett is off Twitter now, but maybe he's still observing because a lot of this had been discussed on Twitter. Um, so I'm going to read you a little bit um, from Brett's essay. So he writes. Here's an excerpt from the introductory essay to the project by the New York Times Magazine's editor, Jake Silverstein, as it appeared in print in August 2019. And then here's the paragraph. 1619. It is not a year that most Americans know as as a notable date in our country's history. Those who do are at most a tiny fraction of those who can tell you that 1776 is the year of our nation's birth. What if, however... We were to tell you that this fact, which is taught in our schools and unanimously celebrated every 4th of July, is wrong. And that the country's true birth date, the moment that its defining contradictions first came into the world, was late in August of 1619. So that's what appeared in print in August 2019. Now, this is how it appears online. 1619 is not a year that most Americans know as a notable date in our nation's history. Those who do are at most a tiny fraction of those who can tell you that 1776 is the year of our nation's birth. What if, however, we were to tell you that that, that the moment that the country's defining contradictions first came into the world was late of August 1619? They took out the most, the most, like, the most important, the most controversial sentence, um, of the piece. And they didn't, they didn't, like, I don't. I I believe they didn't. They didn't actually issue a correction. They just stealth edited it.
0: Right. And and yeah, which just isn't isn't good. You're watering down what's. Yeah, it's unethical. You, you just can't do that. And as multiple people have pointed out, these are a few words in a much bigger important magazine issue. But just seeing it's like all the stuff we talk about on this podcast and and stuff that both of us have written about about. How it feels like progressive media standards are maybe slipping and the, the more sort of hot button social justice issues are discussed, the more they slip. This seems like an example of that, where you just like, you make these, you know, historically unfounded claims and then you just quietly backtrack. I just, I think it looks terrible for the times. The the part of this I find complicated is that I have no doubt that as a black woman writing about slavery and racism, Nicole Hannah-Jones is subjected to like probably some of the more horrific stuff you can get in your email inbox on Twitter. You and I both think that in some cases harassment allegations are sort of, uh, overstated. We've experienced that. I just, someone as high profile as her and black and writing about these issues, I just, I have no doubt. So I, I, I don't want to lose sight of that or, or, you know, I, I can't imagine what that would be like having never been subjected to that particular brand of vitriol. But this, this thing where you're a, a public intellectual and you're writing this 10,000 word, you know, conversation defining essay, and then you just sort of instinctively call people racist. That's sort of your only move is to call people racist when they raise like legitimate, uh, historical disagreements with you. And, and also this thing where she presents herself as this sort of like embattled truth teller. Like, like here, let me just read this from the, the post article. So she, this conservative uh, group called for her Pulitzer to be revoked, which is ridiculous. That's not going to happen. So she tweeted that efforts to discredit her work, quote, put me in a long tradition of black women who failed to know their places. She changed her Twitter bio to slanderous and nasty minded mulattress, a tribute to the trailblazing journalist Ida B. Wells, whom the Times slurred with those same words in 1894. Again, I'm sure she gets harassed. I, I know conservatives hate her. She has enjoyed every potential professional reward imaginable is there any is there anything she hasn't had like one through her hard work
1: there is this line in the washington post piece about the uh immediately after the piece was published and i gotta read this it's just a wild thing uh the 1619 project was an immediate sensation hannah jones who had won a pulitzer for her introductory essay needed an assistant to handle the speaking request silverstein recalls the rapturous crowds that would Deliver a laying on of hands as she walked into their midst. I find that incredibly creepy, to be honest with you.
0: Yeah, it it is, and and like as the the world socialist uh, website notes, like you know she that was at events sponsored by Shell Oil. There's just there's right there's no she's describing a position that is like the. The mainstream position now i 'm in progressive institutions, there are massive culture wars, because as we 've said before uh, there 's this weird division in America where like the conservatives run a lot of political institutions, liberals run educational and cultural ones she she 's in a position of great power and and n- there 's basically no journalist in the world that wouldn 't trade places with her in terms of what she 's accomplished and the reward she 's gotten for it so I just think to in two thousand and twenty to present yourself as this like lonely voice of truth when It just – it would be – she should say I fucked up a little bit and she should point out that she fucked up in a small part of a much bigger essay that's part of a much bigger magazine. I just – I think we would all like to think that public intellectuals, like, comport themselves in a certain way and and are willing to listen to criticism. And a lot of this, I think, is just Twitter makes people crazy. And being online all day, having people hurl racial slurs at you probably makes you crazier.
1: Well, she doesn't do herself any favors by – she doesn't need to engage with every one of her critics. Like, she does this thing that, I, that, like, a lot of people do. People should probably stop doing it. I should stop doing it. You should stop doing it. Which is respond to – like, respond to everybody. I'm sure he doesn't respond to literally everybody. But there could be somebody with, like, 14 followers, and she'll get in some Twitter battle with them. Yeah, She's exactly. just a waste of time, and it makes her look small and petty and defensive. When, you know, there's this, this like, great irony of when you fuck something up. Like, here's an example. I, I fucked something up on our last podcast. I said, um I said that thousands of people were arrested during the Satanic Panic, and what I should have said was thousands of people were accused of, of abuse during the Satanic Panic. And somebody tweeted like kind of like shittily like meanly tweeted at us about it and i like saw that and i got like kind of mad about it even though i knew i was wrong and i stressed about it for a little while and then i thought like you know i'm just gonna admit that i did something wrong and i did and i tweeted and said like my bad here was my mistake and the response to that was a bunch of people praising me so if nicole hannah jones had just you know or like, uh, Joe Rogan, you know, he made a mistake on his podcast. He, he repeated some misinformation about Antifa starting fires, uh, in Portland. He corrected it. When you make a mistake and you actually correct the mistake, people like that. And so it, it does this, it, you feel this little ego blow, but. The reaction to that is generally not you're a horrible person. The reaction to like, oh, you correct your mistake. Like, that's ethical. That's good for you. So, like, if you want to be really cynical about it, the best thing that you can do is, cor- is correct your mistakes and then collect your accolades for correcting your mistakes.
0: As far as I'm concerned, the true, true founding of America was when you acknowledged that mistake.
1: I think it was when we started this podcast, but – I'll take
0: that. Oh, yeah, I really did a Twitter joke about that. The twenty twenty, the twenty twenty project.
1: <laughs> yeah, there was that was my mistake in stealing your Twitter jokes.
0: Did you know that the average history uh, textbook does not even mention our podcast?
1: That is so. That is just erasure, erasure. And imported erasure. <laughs> so, but of course, this doesn't just exist online. Like, I wish that we lived in a world where you know this could be a discussion among you know sort of well-meaning liberals who you know think of themselves as anti-racist, so we could have these conversations and not involve people like Donald Trump and Tom Cotton. That's, of course, not what happened. Because Trump, the right, uh, correctly sensing this is a weakness, a a pressure point on the left, as they have with things like cancel culture and media bias, made this a political issue. So in September, um, Trump, during some speech he gave, he said... The left has warped, distorted, and defiled the American story with deceptions, falsehood, and lies. There is no better example than the New York Times totally discredited 1619 Project. Um, in July of this year, Tom Cotton of Arkansas, the infamous Tom Cotton, proposed the Saving American History Act of 2020, which would prohibit K-12 schools from using federal funds to teach the curriculum. Um, and it would make schools that did ineligible for, for uh Profession for like federal grants. um. So, you know, which is sort of like the conversation about critical race theory in the government. If this project is flawed, should it be taught in schools versus should the government be banning this project from being taught in schools?
0: Right. It's all – it's just – and I think because it's become such a politicized mess, no one wants to be seen as like on quote Trump's side. So then – Of course. That makes liberals who are already – not going to criticize Nicole Hannah-Jones because you're not supposed to do that. Just back into a corner more. Whereas the answer, as always, is Trump's an asshole. But there is sometimes a grain of truth in like one out of every hundred of his utterances. Although I will say in terms of – I find it sort of creepy how this thing comes out and is immediately just sent out to schools. I think there should be more of a process yes. than that. But this is a I pretty small thing to tweak and – fix like i you could easily say like okay 1619 historic uh metaphorically and then just not teach that thing about the the revolutionaries i don't you know i'm not sure
1: right but if that and if if i mean if the times had done that if that had been the, the reaction of jake silverstein and nicole hannah jones the controversy would be over but they didn't that wasn't the answer the answer was to double down to get defensive and then to stealth edit um stealth edit the text of the project
0: yeah um I think a good way to resolve all this and also, like, tie together a few 2020 controversies is Tom Cotton should write an op-ed for the New York Times saying that the the (laughs) army should be deployed to any school that teaches the 1619 Project.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, there was a massive reaction after Brett Stevens publishes his essay. How long do you think Brett's going to last at the Times after this?
0: I think if he survived – The bed bug thing where he literally emailed a sociologist, like Dean, trying to get him in trouble for making fun of him on Twitter. I I actually think he'll stick around because, yeah, I think he'll stick around because also this, this obviously had the support of like, of Kathleen Kingsbury, the, the editor of the op-ed page. So, um,
1: yeah, I'm sort of impressed with her after uh, James Bennett stepped down in the midst of the Tom Cotton op-ed. Um, I'm sort of impressed that she has, I thought – like she's the person who said, you know, if, you, if you're if you a time staffer and you feel unsafe by something p- published in our pages, like here's my, my direct number or whatever, like call me. Did she say uh, –
0: she? I don't know if she said unsafe. It would be funnier if she did. I think she basically said if anything – it was ridiculous. I agree. But I think it was like if anything okay. bothers you or you have any concerns. Sure. But either way, that's not – like if you've worked in a newspaper, that's not no. normal. To say like if someone who, who works for the metro section has a problem with a column, like the answer – Has always been and should be. Well, sorry, like that's not your anyway. Yeah,
1: I mean the answer at the stranger was always write your own column. That's fine. That's what you do. You write your own fucking column. Or that was the answer at the stranger until like
0: you know twenty. That's like the that's a very Dan Savage response,
1: right? Right. right. He
0: hashed it out with like uh Lindy Lindy West. West over fat phobia or whatever.
1: Yeah, I think this is pretty interesting. And this, so what happened is that in 2014, Dan Savage wrote a piece um, that Lindy perce- Lindy, who was on staff, who was a staff writer, um, that she perceived as fatphobic. Lindy's fat. She responded to that in an essay. That essay went viral. It got turned into a piece for This American Life. It got turned into a book, Shrill, a best-selling book, and it's now a show on Hulu. So this es- so this dialogue between Dan and Lindy, not that Lindy wouldn't have taken off anyway. She's a great write- writer, but this dialogue this like fight between Dan and Lindy changed her career in these math she's a fucking showrunner on an HBO show now or well, actually i don't know if she's a showrunner but she's a writer she's like she's hugely successful now and it a lot of that came from this like fight between her and Dan so fast forward 5 years i'm a staff writer at the stranger a young staffer has a problem with something that i've written and i've said the reaction isn't to go and write about it the reaction is to go complain to hr
0: yeah you know I can't stand these fucking kids, man, yeah, I agree.
1: it's just like it's not productive, and it's also like your job like make some fucking art out of it, man. <laughs> make some good work out of conflict. This is what you should be doing. what you should not be doing is complaining to the boss,
0: either write an article or go to the coffee shop and do some sort of spoken word thing about how mean your coworker is.
1: <laughs> I was considering blog post art, but sure,
0: yeah I uh. I don't, I don't know where, where this leaves us. This, I just think, I just think the Times has not, um, necessarily handled this well. And again, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that, uh, this is being weaponized by conservative. Conservatives, of course, have their own, like, mile high issues with historical accuracy. There's textbook issues about slavery. This was one of the subjects of the 1619 project, but I just, I just think the Times, uh, could have done better. And Nicole Hannah-Jones should just maybe not be on Twitter so much, although that's true of all of us.
1: Anything else to say about this, Jesse?
0: No, I mean we should emphasize that here on Blocked and Reported we think slavery is bad. We should just be clear about that.
1: Well it depends on who's being enslaved. Like Yes,
0: yes, yes. Yeah. Gamers. <laughs> okay. Who wants to talk uh Ukrainian political corruption?
1: Oh my god, I can think of nothing I'd rather talk about more.
0: Okay, so obviously you and I put endless um preparation into every episode. Every episode is crafted like some sort of wood carved mallard. I don't know. Um, <laughs>
1: like what are those like chainsaw art
0: (laughs) every episode of the show is chainsaw art i got i my brain glazed over so quickly trying to refresh my memory of uh right wing hunter biden ukraine concert like conspiracy theories in part because these fuckers have such long and complicated names have you noticed that
1: oh my god why are they so fucking ukrainian like can't you be a smith what's wrong with you (laughs)
0: Why are you why you so Ukrainian should be a meme? Um, okay. I'll give the the ultra short version that seems to be the consensus about recent history, which is uh okay, you remember a guy named Vice President Joe Biden, yes?
1: Familiar, yes.
0: Okay he's uh ukraine which is important to us policy because it's like sort of right on the eastern front with uh with russia uh and is a country sort of torn between russian influence and and sort of nato and western influence um uh, biden was sort of heading the ukraine policy that was like one of the things he did
1: when this is when he was vice president
0: when he was vice president yes <laughs> not now as just like uh <laughs> right you, rudy giuliani just freelance foreign policy yeah kind of thing.
1: yeah from his vacation home
0: yeah, exactly. Okay. So, so one aspect of U.S. policy was trying to oust Ukraine's prosecutor general, Viktor Shokin. I'm probably mispronouncing that, but at least it's a short name. Uh, there were all sorts of reasons for ousting him, having to do with corruption, having to do with Russian influence. This is the kind of thing where, like, I don't get the sense there is much historical dispute about this. Like, uh, the entire sort of West, as it were, wanted this guy out and thought that, like, for the health of Ukraine and the U.S., cause, like, we're pursuing our own policies there. It was important to get this guy out. Okay. So, so because corruption's awesome and you gotta just make that money, Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, as his dad was vice president pursuing Ukraine policy, uh, had a slot on the board of Burisma, this energy giant in Ukraine, which, like, any energi- energy giant in, like, a post-Soviet state, uh, a lot of corruption issues. $50,000 a month reportedly, uh, he got for sitting on this board. I have seen liberals sort of, um, reflexively defend Hunter Biden and pretend there's nothing wrong with this. From where I sit, there is very obviously something wrong with getting $50,000 from an energy company based in a geopolitically important country when your dad is the vice president and, and running, helping to run U.S. policy in this country. I assume we're in agreement on this, right?
1: Right. If, if this were Don Jr. and Trump were president, people would have an issue with this and, yeah. and to and like hunter hunter is biden's fuck-up son but like biden's family story is so tragic like he had this golden child who died his his wife and his first maybe daughter or two daughters died um so he, he like he's left with basically like the one fuck-up son
0: yes yeah very fucked up son he's had he's had serious addiction issues um so because hunter biden was on the board of this energy company um, this right-wing conspiracy theory emerged that the reason the U.S. was trying to oust this prosecutor, Shokin, was because they were going after this energy company. Um, this is like a roundabout conspiracy theory. And the reason, in my view, it's pretty straightforward as, uh, not an expert on this stuff is there just appears to be copious evidence that there were other reasons we wanted this prosecutor general out. But the right-wing conspiracy theory is like, Hunter Biden was able to have this huge influence on policy or attempt to, um, I do not think this is a well-founded conspiracy theory. I do think people should acknowledge that it's a very bad look for Hunter Biden to have been in this position for exactly this reason, because then, you know, you, you could say, well, what is he doing there? Like Joe Biden said that this is just something they didn't talk about, which is a hard thing to prove. It just puts everyone in a precarious position, I guess, except for Hunter Biden who gets $50,000 a month. Um, Okay, so I haven't fucked up anything major so far, right, as far as you remember?
1: Well, wait, we should also say this is also what led to Donald Trump's impeachment.
0: Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's like I literally forgot that the president was (laughs) impeached. Like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um I'm trying to remember every aspect of the impeachment. (laughs)
1: You guys can Google it. Trump impeachment 2020.
0: Yeah, just Google Trump impeachment. It'll be fine. Like, uh, It's so funny that you can just tell the whole recent history and just leave out the whole impeachment thing. Uh, Okay, so the New York Post a couple days ago, as of today, Friday, runs a story, front page revealed Ukrainian exec thanked Hunter Biden for, quote, opportunity to meet Veep Dad Biden's secret emails in those classic big New York Post letters. OK, so someone drops a laptop off at a Delaware computer repair shop run by a blind guy. <laughs> this sounds like the start of a joke. It's not. I mean, it is isn't. it isn't. Um, this appears to be Hunter Biden's laptop and on it are all these emails. This is what the Post reports. Uh, so apparently th- there's hints of a meeting, and I'll just read this directly. The never-before-revealed meeting is mentioned in a message of appreciation that Vadim Posharki, an advisor to the board of Burisma, allegedly sent Hunter Biden on April seventeenth, 2015, about a year after Hunter joined the board for 50 grand a month. So the idea is that Hunter is trying to set up his dad uh, with, for a meeting with, with this executive at an oil company – um, which, of course, just furthers this conspiracy theory that really U.S. policy was being driven by Hunter Biden's relationship to this oil company. Uh, this laptop also contained, uh, photos of Hunter Biden and sexually explicit videos. And, you know, the post just sort of mentioned all this.
1: And they published the photo. They published not the, they didn't publish him like having sex, but they did publish like embarrassing photos of him like topless. Like it looks like he's like asleep with a crack pipe in his mouth, which I mean, who hasn't fallen asleep with a crack pipe in your mouth a time or two? We've all been there.
0: It's the podcast life. Yeah. they, They obviously these photos were meant to be sort of embarrassing. Right and, and uh, you know of course the New York Post, which is this, this very old paper, but it does it is sort of a it has some good reporters. It's also a sort of conservative tabloid paper, um, you know, with the the Murdoch influence. Okay, so um, a couple things happen. We'll get to the big thing. The the important other info is um, Biden's people just sort of are like, no, we never met with this guy, and
1: it's not on his. Yeah, sorry to interrupt you, Jesse, but it's also not the meeting is not on Biden's official calendar. Not that's not definitive, but. It's something.
0: Yeah, it's there. The people who worked with him just are all like, no, they, they showed the other stuff that spoke, that happened this night. It was not this. It is on its face weird that Biden would just like have a meeting with a random guy. And this does appear to be a random guy because a lot of people have never heard of him from an oil company. Um, also the, the email, if you read it closely, it, it says, thanks for the opportunity to meet with your dad. Right. It doesn't say a meeting took right. place. So there's all sorts of questions. Right. Okay. Then, Katie, how did Facebook and Twitter respond to the existence of this article?
1: Wait, wait, you've you've forgotten the most important part about this. The shop's owner says that he turned this laptop which was never picked up, it was like water damage that it was never picked up, that he turned it over to the feds. But before that he made a copy of the hard drive and he gave it to Rudy Giuliani's lawyer, Robert (laughs) Cozzello. So the reason the post found out about this, and the post really lays this out in the piece, which is sort of fascinating, but the reason the post got it was they got it from Steve Bannon.
0: It's like all the fucking worst people in american politics just inevitably pop up everywhere
1: right who this so i i, I guess we can probably intuit how the blind shop owner is going to be voting in uh in November.
0: <laughs> um yeah so right giuliani involvement Bannon involvement okay Yes, that is important. So it, this this has various makings of like obviously a a co- email level email but her emails level October event but designed to fuck up the election but his right. emails except right. I just will say like intuitively given how much trouble I one of the smartest people in the country other than you have mm-hmm. even following this story it just doesn't I feel like it doesn't pack much of a punch unless you've already decided Joe Biden is evil. Like, it just doesn't really latch onto my brain somehow. Maybe it's because my brain is so exhausted by this point.
1: No, I think you're right. And there's so much other shit happening right now. I mean, this would I think that this would have been a pretty minor story had the following not happened. So The Post publishes the story. Very quickly after that, uh, the Facebook communications director Andy Stone, who is also a former staffer for California Democrat Barbara Boxer and the Democratic Congressional Campaign F- Committee, tweeted the following. While I will intentionally not link to the New York Post, I want to be clear that this story is eligible to be fact-checked by Facebook's third-party fact-checking partners. In the meantime... We are reducing its distribution on our platform. So Facebook announces that they are like de I don't know, like well, like like suppressing it on the algorithm so this couldn't be sh- so this wouldn't show up on news feeds. Soon after that, Twitter actually blocks people from tweeting the link. So if you tweeted the link to the article, you would get a message reading, we can't complete this request because the link has been identified by Twitter or our partners as being potentially harmful. And not only that, they actually suspended some people who, who posted the link.
0: Yeah. Look, I mean, as, as we'll discuss, like there's actually not easy answers to a lot of these questions of fact checking and censorship. It's just, it's complicated, but I, I just found this idea of, preventing people from I, even tweeting a story or suspending them for doing so that did appear in a major mainstream American paper. I, I just found that incredibly creepy.
1: Oh, it's a creepy and also really fucking dumb. If you don't – and I do think Twitter and Facebook's intention was to suppress the story and part of that is probably because of what happened during 2016, the October surprise with Coney, or uh, James Comey's, you know, revolution about Hillary Clinton's emails Um so they're responding to all of this criticism about Twitter and Facebook sort of influencing the election. And so their response to that is to do something that immediately makes people want to see it. It's like, have they never heard of the Streisand effect? I mean, just incredibly stupid. The story might have disappeared within 12 hours in the current news cycle, but instead it became the story. And that is entirely their fault. And then, of course, after that, they look terrible. Um, and then... Uh, the Republicans immediately threatened to take some sort of legal action against Twitter, um, the, like the like the official like GOP account tweeted something like see you soon jack about jack dorsey and then trump the next day he tweets that we must immediately strip them and by them he means these tech companies of their section 230 protections um the head of the fcc uh uh, he says that they're going to be that the fcc is actually going to be revisiting section 230 of the communications decency act which is actually a really big deal and this is something that has had a little bit of bipartisan support so to like to like simplify it immensely. Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act is a provision that means that websites or internet service providers can't be held legally responsible for for, for content generated on those websites. So if you are selling black and market handbags in the comment section of an article or on Twitter or on Facebook, the platforms themselves cannot be held responsible. That's the existing law. There's some There are some exceptions to that like content that is uh that um that is co- like copyright infringement that violates copyright infringement laws and sex trafficking laws. This is post Sesta Fosta, um a pair of bills that we talked about on our our episode with Elizabeth Nolan Brown a couple uh weeks ago that had like lots of bipartisan support. Lots of Democrats were in favor of, of reforming Section two thirty um to like quote unquote prevent sex trafficking. Of course there's lots of downstream effects that Actually, it might increase sex trafficking because these are how things work. But dumping Section Two Hundred and Thirty would be really bad.
0: The internet, as it functions today, could not function if any website could be held liable. I mean, it's just it it would not. It's like one of those things where you can understand the downsides of the current system, but people don't necessarily think through how much worse the alternative would be.
1: I mean, the, the hilarious thing is that if you dump section 230, companies like Facebook and Twitter would be way, way more heavy handed in terms of content like this, any sort of content that could be potentially, that could potentially give them in, get them in legal trouble. Um, so it would just result in mass censorship across the internet. Um, so the, so, this is what now the GOP is pushing for. Um, hopefully Trump will be voted out of office before they actually, you know, like actually do it and Biden will appoint new people to the FCC and things will move on, but who fucking knows at this point? Um, so Twitter basically gave the GOP and the FCC ammunition for far more regulation of, of the internet by trying to suppress this story that far fewer people would have been interested in reading if they hadn't tried to fucking suppress it.
0: Yeah. And, and what jumped out at me is just like how completely unprepared all these sites were to handle this. Like Twitter invoked this supposed ban on posting hacked materials. Now, first of all, there's no clear indication this was hacked unless you think the post is just completely making up the genesis of these materials. They
1: – I don't think they were hacked if someone just – Well, the, the new – the conspiracy theory is that this was Russian – that this was the Russians. Right. So you always – blame the Russians. You always got to blame the Russians. <laughs> right.
0: Either way, uh, you know what? I'm sorry. But if someone hacks an important Trump organization computer tomorrow and sends that material to the new York, the New York Times – the idea that twitter would ban that material is just laughable i just don't this is not a a uh, enforce consistently enforceable policy
1: right and a lot of people have pointed out that this would mean that twitter would uh you know um prevent sharing the links to the pentagon papers or the panama papers um you yeah. know this like very imp- some very important journalism comes from hacks and leaks and things like that um and and the whole the, the policy itself like if you read it, it reads as though they're talking about leaking like celebrity nudes. That seems like this is why the policy exists was, you know, to address this one very particular thing. But the policy is vague enough so that they sort of, uh, you know, like rejiggered it a little bit to apply in this particular case.
0: Yeah. Uh, so I think, I mean, there's this dynamic where everyone on the left bashes Twitter and Facebook for not doing more to halt the spread of, of far right extremism. Everyone on the right bashes him for supposedly being, you know, uh, anti-conservative. Um, there's th- – I think there's actually some merit to both positions and I-, I think it's very hard to say with a straight face that like everyone who works for Twitter at the highest levels or everyone who works for Facebook at the highest levels is liberal. You know, I'm sure there's a few libertarians thrown in there, but I don't think we should pretend this is just a Trump thing. Like, if it was Biden versus Mitt Romney, you would see the same political preferences. So I think rather than denying that there's like a certain level of um. Uh, homogeneity uh, among the people who work at these companies. We should just figure out, like, how do we how do we make sure their biases don't interfere with this decision making process? I just think people like don't admit what's very obvious, which there is a this these sites are overwhelmingly run by liberals,
1: right? And you know the the really like frustrating thing is that it's oftentimes been media critics and journalists and liberals demanding that these platforms. Act like publishers, that they act like, uh, that they act like censors when they are clearly not equipped to do it. These are not run by journalists. Sure, they can employ some fact checkers. Facebook had a, had some sort of, um affiliation with Snopes to do some fact checking. Snopes itself, which has been accused of bias. So that, like, I'm not sure how that's going to fix it. Um, you know, these things are all incredibly complicated, but this idea that now Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey or, and their staff are responsible for policing what we can see online, what the, what can be published. I mean, the New York Post, like, it's definitely it got sort of a tabloidy feel but the res- like the correct response to this should be other journalists digging into the story and finding out if it's true There's definitely issues with the sourcing. You know, it comes from Rudy Giuliani and Steve Bannon. Well, fucking go into that, you know. But there
0: have, there have been already, like within a day, there were some fact checks published and I found them very compelling. If I didn't find them compelling, I wouldn't say so, but I, I I think this is mostly a bullshit story. Um, I don't think the existence of the emails, like there was a sort of squirrely quote, uh, Biden, Hunter Biden's lawyer gave. That didn't deny that the, the emails themselves were real, but, but in terms of whether there was actually a meeting or a Hunter Biden even had the power, it's, it's very unlikely Hunter Biden could just say to his, the vice president, even his dad, Hey, could you meet with this fucking businessman? Like that doesn't even make sense. So, but
1: there's no way that Facebook and Twitter immediately after it was published did that sort of due diligence. And no. I don't think it's their role to do it in the first place.
0: I don't either. I think, I think people should read the fact checks. I think if they hadn't done this heavy handed ban, the story would have had way less of a footprint. And this whole thing was just. It was, A, a giant fuck-up, and, B, to reiterate my earlier point, the fact that it's October 2020 and these platforms uh, act like chickens with their heads cut off when the most – everyone knew something like this was going to happen this month. This wasn't a surprise.
1: Totally. I mean this is all fucking inevitable. There will probably be some more salacious stories about Hunter Biden. I don't know. Like – going to furry conventions or something tomorrow from the Trump administration.
0: How amazing would that be to get ten, fifty thousand dollars a month to just sit on the board of a company? I I wish I could get that kind I'd of thing. I take it. that. You and I have have mentioned repeatedly how much um you know esteem we have for the company Halliburton, so I just want to just <laughs> offer like if Halliburton wants sort of a consultant on podcasting issues, I, I'm I'm available.
1: Yeah, I'm too. Well, uh, you'll uh, you'll get some diversity points also for hiring a, a Jew and a and a lesbian.
0: <laughs> we'll see about that. Uh Anything else on this story? I, it just seems like. The main story is just how badly the platforms fucked this up, and how sleazy fucking Rudy Giuliani is.
1: Yeah, they just really, really fucked this one up. I mean, they put themselves in this position. Part of the lesson here, I think, is like don't make immediate decisions. Just like w- wait a few minutes before you, you know, decide to censor censor an article, um, or even react to an article. Just like wait five minutes, take a walk.
0: Just wait five minutes. Uh, okay, I guess if that about wraps it up, unless there is anything. You have anything else to say? Any announcements? Anything exciting going on in your life?
1: I had a tweet go a little bit viral because of this. Ooh. That's the first time that's happened. What was a tweet?
0: No, you've had viral tweets before. I,
1: I don't know that I have. This one was like way more viral. So I don't have notifications turned on for people who fall, for people who don't follow me. So it's possible I've had lots of viral tweets and I just never see that, ne- have never, that's like, never noticed. Um, but I said, I just tried to reach the Hunter Biden story and Jack Dorsey appeared in front of me and slapped my phone out of my hand. <laughs> um, so 24,000, 21.4 20, no, 21, 21. thousand likes.
0: Are you serious? I don't think I've ever had a. Wow. That's pretty impressive, Katie. Yeah. You're, you're good at this after all.
1: You know, I didn't notice it for like 24 hours. And so unfortunately I didn't post a link to the, to the blocked and reported until way later. And that got 87 likes. <laughs>
0: oh man. <laughs> I missed opportunity.
1: Yeah. Not getting that barissima money now.
0: Okay. Uh, as always, we're at blocked and reported podcast at gmail.com. We're on Reddit. Please rate and review us on Apple podcasts. Uh, what else? At the Bar Pod on Twitter.
1: Uh most importantly, we are on Patreon. Patreon is our fan club member bonus program, membership program. Um it is blocked and reported at Patreon. Wait, pa- nope. blocked and reported <laughs> what is it?
0: Myspace.com. Patreon, patreon.com slash blocked and reported. Lots more stuff. Extra episodes. We're about to record one. On Ken Bone, everyone's favorite uh moderate dad,
1: I guess? (laughs) Everyone's favorite undecided. Yes. Um, So please check that out. For $5 a month, you can get lots of good free shit. And also it helps support us.
0: This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single, and remember... If you're a Ukrainian energy company and you want me to sit on your board, I will do it for only $49,000 a month.
1: And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, if you're a Ukrainian energy company and you want Jesse to sit on your face, he'll do it for free.